Welcome to East of Eden, the Biblical and Systematic Theology of Jonathan Edwards. I'm Nick Batzig, your host, and we are so glad to be back again. And I am here online with David Owen Filson, who is a teaching pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. David, it's great to have you back on the show. So good to be here. And as usual, our other panelist is Jeff Waddington, who is now the doctor... Jeffrey C. Waddington, and we are so glad to have you back on the show, Jeff. How are you doing? Oh, doing well. Thank you for having me on. And as our listeners will probably know, Jeff is uh, the communication director for the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, doing a lot of good work over there, getting new blog sites started and um, lots of other ministry projects that they have going on with conferences and fundraising. And so um, if you have ideas for Jeff or if you have questions about the ministries at the Alliance, feel free to contact him for that. But Jeff, we are very um, excited that you have... Um, that you've received your doctorate. So I know I've, I've congratulated you in the past, but this is an official congratulation. So Thank you. I'm um, glad, glad to be on this side of the program now. Any uh, hope of having your dissertation published? Um, yeah, I'm looking at doing that. It's just uh, looking at the various publishers uh, that I would want to submit to. So that, that's what I'm at, the phase I'm at right now. Well, I would just mention to our listeners the Jonathan Edwards and the Church Conference at the University of Durham in February of 2014, and so that would give some people a little bit of time to prepare for that, especially if you're in the UK and you listen to us. We would love to meet you there and looking forward to doing some lectures there on Edwards, and each of us will be given a paper together with some other uh, pastors and Edwards scholars um, dealing with Edwards' practical value uh, for ministry in the church today. And so please be on the lookout for that as future announcements will come out. Well, today what we've decided to do is take one of Edward's shorter sermons, and one of the sermons that he preached to the Indians after his expulsion from his pulpit in Northampton in 1751, he preached, What is meant by believing in Christ? What is meant by believing in Christ? And this can be found in the McMullen edited uh, volume, The Blessing of God. It's the only place you can find it. It's not on the Yale site. And so if you don't have a copy of that, I highly encourage you to get a hold of that while it's in print. There are... Um, uh, several dozen sermons in there that were previously unpublished, and this is one of them, what it meant, what is meant by believing in Christ. Dave, I'm going to kick it off to you to start us as usual and give us a little historical background for the sermon. Sure. Well, about 40 miles uh, away from Northampton, uh, Jonathan Edwards found himself at Stockbridge. Uh, Stockbridge was uh, essentially an outpost, and it was it was a frontier outpost there in Massachusetts, uh, as we have noted before on previous episodes, this is where Edwards did some of his most prolific work in terms of heavier, larger treatises, etc. cetera. Uh, but it was also a period where he did some of his most pastorally sensitive work because he was having to attenuate his message for the capacity of his, of his hearers. And so here we have, in what is believing in Christ, again, first preached in January of 51 and then preached just a little over a year later, in February of 1752, but he had a congregation there essentially in terms of his Indian, his Native American Indian congregation, roughly 300 or so um, Stockbridge Indians there uh, made up of, of Mohicans and Housatonic Indians, etc. And this, this sermon is really 
um, characteristic of his preaching during this period in Stockbridge. Uh, he is borrowing, um, you know, imagery from nature that the Indians are going to be able to um, relate to very easily. At the same time, there there is a commonality theologically in these Indian sermons where he's dealing a lot with Adam Christ parallel in very simple uh, terms and categories, but Adam Christ parallel. He's dealing with issues of the fall, heavy emphasis not only on judgment, that's certainly there in these sermons, and it is in this one, but the, the beautiful reality of the gospel. Uh, there will also be in these sermons, and this is an example of that, an emphasis on the need for God to sovereignly open the eyes of the Indians to give them light to believe in Christ. There's also an emphasis in this sermon, and again, this is characteristic of, of many of these Indian sermons, on God as your ultimate happiness, which is shot through all of his theology and all of his sermons uh, throughout his his corpus. So that's just a little bit of uh, a little bit of background there. Yeah, that's very helpful. It's it's not a long sermon, Jeff. Could you just talk to us briefly a little bit about the division and how Edward structures this, particularly? Um, and, and maybe even compare it with some of his other sermons that are not preached to the Indians. Right. Uh, and I, don't, I can't remember, uh, Dave, if you mentioned the text this is based on, but it's Mark 16, 15 to 16. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So that, that's the text for the, the message. Now, we've already said that this is a, a sermon that was uh, – written and preached to Native Americans, and I suspect the typical reader of an Edwards sermon will actually appreciate this one because it is less complex than than the sermons he preached in Northampton and and in other locations. Uh, I found it to be quite uh, easy to follow. It's really divided into two parts. Basically, he's uh, seeking to show what it means to believe in Jesus Christ, and then he wants to show how it is that believing in Jesus Christ uh, will save you. And so that's how the, the sermon is divided into two parts, and, and there'll be some overlap. It, it's not like each section is, is hermetically sealed, uh, but that's the basic structure, what it means to believe in Jesus Christ, and then how that leads to a person's being saved. Yeah, it struck me when I um, was a young believer reading through Edward's sermons just to to note the difference and the similarities between his sermons that he preached in Northampton and elsewhere to um, to Americans and then how he preached to Native Americans and how he preached there in Stockbridge and um, just fascinating the contextualization that he does, that on one hand, he preaches the same way he preaches um, elsewhere, the same content, the same searching sort of preaching. There's an there's a, a attempt to reach the intellect, and we'll see that in a second, even in the introduction and bringing them along to understand their need for Christ. Um, and obviously, a lot of application, pastoral and experiential application, and yet there's a simplicity. Um, it's it's as if he simplifies what um, we find in the manuscripts that we have from the sermons he preached at Northampton. I thought that was very interesting. I also thought it was interesting the way the sermon opens. Um, it's almost a uh, it's a progressive movement through 
redemptive history, right. but not looking at redemptive history, though he is, but looking at the declines in different periods of redemptive history back into idolatry. So God calling the Jews, so he opens his sermon and says, before Christ came, there was but one nation that worshiped the true God. It was the nation of the Jews. All the other nations worshiped idols. And then... um and then he says, but in two to three hundred years after the flood, they all began by degrees to grow more wicked, to forget the true God. The devil drew them away after other gods. Then he called Abraham and separated him. And then he says, um, after this, all the world beside the Jews who were Abraham's posterity fell away to the worship of idols, had wholly left true religion. And so all continued worshiping idols for about 1,500 years till Christ came. Then he talks about how the Jews in the days of Christ really became proud and self-righteous and in that sense lost uh, true religion. And then ultimately he brings it down into uh, post-resurrection. And I love the way he brings it right home to the Indians to whom he's preaching. And he says, Christ was the light of the world. The preaching of the gospel was like the rising of the sun in the morning that shone all away all darkness and filled the world with light. Before this, the English were ignorant and dark, just like the Indians were before the English came here. And um, I, I was struck, and I'd like y'all's thoughts on this, but I was struck at the brilliance of how he brings he brings it all the way through redemptive history right up to the people he's preaching to. Yeah, I think it's brilliant the way he does that, Nick, and he does it um, in relatively short compass doesn't he? I mean, it's not page after page after page of him doing this in relatively short compass, just, you know, four, five paragraphs, short paragraphs. He, he does that um, progression from, uh, from the Jews and their idolatry to the resurrection of Christ and then brings it home to the Indians. The interesting thing is here is that as he's saying to the Indians, um, the English were dark, uh, just like y'all were before the English came. Now, I realize that for some, this very concept sounds so politically incorrect for us to even be talking about this. I just want to go on record and say I'm part Indian myself. I'm part Cherokee myself, uh, literally, and I have no problem with this. I'm thankful. <laughs> I'm thankful the gospel came, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, he does this in fairly short, uh, fairly short order, and there's a certain urgency to these Indian sermons. He's really – it's almost, it's interesting that he's – preaching from the book of Mark here because there is an urgency in these Indian sermons to get them to the reality of the crucified and risen Savior, much like Mark's gospel itself does. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I don't I don't think that it's wrong the way he sets it up because he's almost trying to parallel the experience of the, the gospel going from the Jews first to the Gentiles, then making its way through the world first to the English, then to the Indians. Um, and so he's just looking at a progression as the gospel runs throughout. Um, obviously, that can be mistaken and even right. biblically mis- misrepresented textually. But I, I thought that was an interesting introduction to the sermon. If others, the others who, uh, if you've read other other writings by Edwards or even his personal letters, uh, volume 16 in the Yale edition of the works of Edwards, you, you would know that, that Edwards did not spare his own countrymen uh, criticism. Right. Uh, in, in, ter- in fact, it, it's, I, I don't remember where he says this, but he'll, he'll, he basically says that the Indians are in a better position mm-hmm. than, the, than English people, Englishmen, who've been exposed to the gospel and turned their back on it. Yeah, yeah, that they had less privilege and yet they had more grace the Indians did, right. than those right. with the great privileges and had sort of turned their backs and walked away. 
Yeah, and then you see here he's doing what I was alluding to earlier. Um, he, he borrows imagery from nature, you know, the rising of the sun, the idea of light. Light is a very prominent theme in all of the Indian sermons. Mm. Uh, it, it's just, it just shot through all of the Indian sermons, the idea of darkness and light and having eyes opened, that sort of thing. But that, that's because it, it's commensurate with his idea of seeing the beauty of Christ, uh, seeing your happiness in, in God, but there must be light shown darkness has to be scattered that that's a very very prominent theme and he's doing it here at the very outset yeah now when he enters in on this um as jeff's already said this twofold division in the first part to ask and answer the question what is meant by believing in christ edwards gives sort of a two-sentence definition of what it means to believe he says for a man to believe in christ is to come to him with all the heart to take him for a savior and give himself to him, to be one of his people and to have all his dependence on Christ to make him happy. So that's sort of the definition he gives, the the introductory answer to what does it mean to believe in Christ? It's to believe with all the heart, to take him for your savior, to give yourself to him, to be one of his people and to have your dependence on him to make you happy. Um, There's a lot in that. And obviously, um, Edwards is going to unpack that. I, I found, and I'd like y'all's thoughts on this, particularly interesting that he, he adds dependence on Christ to make him happy, that you really see Edwards' um, affectional theology coming out as it does everywhere, that he's not just going to say to trust him to be the Savior, to come to him with all your heart to give yourself to him, but he has to include in that dependence on Christ to make you happy. thought that was interesting. Yeah, that's a central theme of his theology, isn't it? I mean, we did um, several episodes back, we looked at Edwards, and we talked about heaven, the beatific vision, etc. And for Edwards, you know, it's not just here that we are to be dependent on Christ for happiness, but for all eternity, Christ is going to be the object of our happiness. He is going to be the sine qua non in the new heavens and the new earth for our, not only our happiness, but for our continued growth and blessedness and happiness, our progressive happiness. And so there is a, there is a, there is a Christocentricity to Edward's notion of, of happiness, which happiness is central to his goodness, his anthropology, his soteriology, uh, everything. And so it's just a beautiful example of how, um, here in a very, as you said earlier, Nick, simplified, not simplistic, but a simplified version of his theology, very consistent. I mean, when, I, when you read that line there, I'm thinking, well, in a sense, that could have been said, you know, in somewhere in the 12 positive signs of religious affection, very consistent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, also interesting that when he goes through this sermon, he is really encompassing um, the call to come to Christ with the excellency of Jesus as he does everywhere else. So on the, the, um, the third page of the sermon on page 240, the first paragraph down, he says, those who truly believe in Christ see the excellency of the great things that the word of God teaches about Christ. And then, um, the, the bottom paragraph of page 240 he says, they who truly believe in Christ see how lovely he is. They love him with all their hearts. Um, so he's really showing that to be drawn to Christ is to be drawn to his beauty and his glory and his excellency. But very interesting, before he even moves into that, he, he sets up kind of two things. One is he does have a concern about 
hypocrites, as usual, and they are right after given the definition. He says there are a great many who are called Christians who are baptized. And that's interesting because Jesus says whoever believes and is baptized will be saved in the sermon text. He says there are a great many who are called Christians who are baptized and keep Sabbath days and go to meeting who don't truly believe in Christ. So, again, Edwards is always pressing for true saving faith. Um, do, do y'all know the state of the Indians at this time in 1751? How long has Edwards been there? Has he seen um, great work accomplished there? Well, he's been there a year, right? Uh, or there, maybe not even a year at this point. Uh, yeah. He, he was he, dismissed. He preached his farewell sermon in June of 1750 at Northampton. I believe he arrives in January of 51, if I'm not mistaken. And, and so, this, so this sermon, at least in its first iteration, would have been right out of the gate uh, for for his for his ministry, um, you know. By the time he arrived at Stockbridge, as I said earlier, there were roughly you know three hundred Indians under his under his charge. Then he had you know a handful of um, of English uh, parishioners as well. Um, but by the time he arrived, I think it was just around fifty, maybe a little less, who were actually on the rolls as members of the, um, of the church there in Stockbridge. So by this time, by the time of the second, or by the time of the first uh, preaching of this sermon, not all uh, of those Indians would have been, you know, considered uh, members of the, of the church there, only roughly 50, I think. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. He continues that sort of searching, um, searching, uh, call to examine whether um, whether or not his hearers have saving faith by saying there are a great many who own the Christian religion and say they believe in God and that Christ is the Son of God and Savior of sinners, but they don't truly believe in Christ. They who are wicked men who walk in wicked ways, let them say what they will, they don't truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Such are those who don't believe in Christ with all their hearts. They and their hearts don't come to Christ to be his people and to take him for their Savior. Then he does something that I found very interesting. He brings his Calvinian um, commitment to bear before he even comes to call them to do anything um, in this exposition. And he says there, they who truly believe in Christ, they know Christ. God opens their eyes to -hmm. see how great and glorious he is and how good and how lovely he is. I think that's massively important. I mean, it's the... The, the the human being who is who is not regenerate cannot open uh, his or her eyes, right. and so it's important that that uh, Edwards, uh, you know, it's not as it, we're not, you know, there's more to preach uh, than in terms of Calvinism than the doctrine of election or predestination or effectual calling, but obviously those points ha- do need to be addressed because they're in the Bible, right? You know, as, as Calvin said. You know, his favorite verse was Deuteronomy 29, 29. Those secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed belong to us and to our children. Uh, this is, these things are taught. It's taught in God's Word that it, it, for a person to see or to sense their, their sinfulness and, and to see the loveliness of Christ, uh, that, that requires a supernatural work of regeneration for that for that to happen so it's not a i don't see it as a problem for him to say that it's it's i i don't think we serve our people well 
Uh, and apparently he felt the same way. We don't serve our people well if, if we, you know, hide this in the back pocket, right. if you will. And I, I've actually heard one man in the reform camp say recently, um, we call men to faith and repentance. And when asked, well, don't we need to tell people that that faith and that repentance is a gift and a grace of God. He said, no, I think that uh, that that makes the call to die the death of a thousand qualifications. I think that he's very wrong in saying that and that what Edwards is doing is fascinating in a sermon on, you know, whoever believes, he's going to emphasize that that's only going to become come to you because God regenerates you and opens your eyes and enables you to believe and see the glory of Christ. And... um that tension, right, between the call to believe and the reality that no one can come unless the Father draws them, and that Edwards is unashamed in bringing that in. Yeah, I, th- I agree, and I think um, I think if that makes the call die the death of a thousand qualifications, with all due respect, uh, someone probably should have mentioned that to Jesus before he engaged Nicodemus <laughs> right. in John 2 and 3. And I don't mean to be snarky, but I just think the doctrine of predestination and regeneration— is so delicious and so life-giving that I think we, we seek to make ourselves wiser than God when we want to you know, edit that out of our evangelism, edit that out of our, of our preaching. Um, I, and, I, and again, we could, we could pile up a list as long as your leg of, of references in Scripture where clearly the apostolic writers um, believe that to be the case as well. And I think with regard to Edwards here and what he's doing with the, the Indians here in, the, in uh, 1751 and then again in February 52, he's being very consistent with what he did right in 1730 mm-hmm. with that sermon before the Boston clergy, God's gl- God glorified in man's dependence, where he's right. preaching the same theology and doing the exact same thing and making sovereign regeneration and predestination a, a central part of his gospel preachment. See, he does not. Uh, uh, Edwards does not hold to the Arminian notion that ought implies can. Right. The command is issued. The proclamation is repent and turn in faith to Christ. That does not mean that natural men can do that of their own volition. Okay. That's now right. that's that's the dispute that we have with our Arminian friend. Right. Uh, but at the same point, let's let's remember that that. Uh, he he does here even at this point he's stressing the loveliness of Christ the attra- what is actually true about Jesus is that he is altogether lovely now we don't often think in those terms uh, or we speak that way today I, I've I've got uh, reformed friends who think that that language is syrupy and sickeningly sweet uh, but uh, Jesus is the most attractive individual in the universe right yes right he, yes. By, he is objectively that right. now notice, notice what he, he says here on on page 240 we're still under the first point what it means to trust in christ if a sick man who is likely to die does not know that he is dangerously sick and thinks he is pretty well, he won't go with all his heart to the physician to save him. Mm. That reminds me of a, of a comment, I think it was Dr. Van Til made. Uh, someone hit, was critical of Van Til's uh, 
a confrontational approach to apologetics, and he said, "Well, if you see people running off a cliff, is it the love? Is it the loving thing to say nothing?" Right, right. And, and in, this, in, a, in a similar way, Edwards is saying, "Look, I've got to show these people, or tell them that they are sick and in need of a physician, right. but they're not going to go to the physician unless they know they're sick." That's right. And I mean, Jesus, again, just to bring it back to what Dave said earlier, I mean, it was the Lord Jesus that said, the well have no need of a physician, but those that are sick. I did not right. come to call the the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And um, interesting how Edwards moves in and out, isn't it, from God's sovereignty and his role in enabling you to believe and opening your eyes to believe, and then moving right into, you need to know how wicked you are so that you see your need for Christ. So he's he's kind of he's moving right back into man's responsibility. It's almost it's almost a seamless moving in and out of these. Yeah, I mean, two it's, it's really masterful uh, from a from a methodological standpoint. The severity of our sin juxtaposed with the sweetness of the Savior, and he just goes back and forth, back and forth. And I think that's very effective. And, you know, getting to what you were saying a second ago, Jeff, with, you know, there are some folks who think that Edward's language of the sweetness or the beauty of Christ is syrupy or whatever. I say, pour the syrup on me, man. I, I love it. And, and, um, and I need it. And it's not just Edwards, you know, many of the, not just Edwards, but you, you know, go back across the ocean there to Edwards' forebears. I mean, if you read the letters of Rutherford, if you read the sermons of Rutherford, um, if you read the treatises of Sibs, listen, that, that post, that post reformation and puritanical lot of, of men were very, uh, intimate with the language they used and very picturesque with the language they used evoking. I mean, that's why they, they were affectional theologians. They, they were affectional writers and preachers. And so the language of beauty, of sweetness, of intimacy, of love, of being ravished, that kind of thing, they thought of Jesus that way. I mean, they, they sincerely thought of Jesus that way. And I, I know my heart needs that. I think it would do the church a great deal of good if we could learn to think in those terms uh, in our preaching and teaching and in, in our relating to the Lord today. Well, yeah. I, w- I wonder if part of the reason that we don't is because we've thrown out a Christocentric approach to the Song of Songs, too, which, interestingly, is where all that language comes from. I asked um, Joel Beakey once, um, as I was working on the, the Christology of the song, um, about what he thought, and he said, well, I'll put it this way. He said, the greatest preachers in the history of uh, the Reformation and, and Puritan era their favorite book almost down the line was the Song of Songs and almost without exception understood it was about Christ. And what we've done is we've stripped Jesus out of the song. And when you go through Edwards, I mean, Edwards has almost a whole commentary if you go through all that he wrote on it. And without fail, every reference is a defense of the Christology of the song. Um, And so even that language of he is altogether lovely, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think familiarizing ourselves with that, even if we don't understand the hermeneutic of the psalm, the song completely, even if we, we don't want to argue over allegorical, typological, how do we understand all of this, I think there's a sense where any believer should be able to approach the Song of Songs, get the book of Hosea, get Ephesians 5, and understand that there is something being you know relayed about the beauty and excellency of Jesus and how that stirs up our love for him. Um, yeah. So 
if look look at those words that are uh, on the page of 241, and this really gets to the heart of why it's important to preach the beauty and the loveliness of Christ. We're not talking about an effeminate Christ. Okay, that, that's not, and that may be the concern, I think, in some folks' uh, con, uh, view, is that this is a very uh, effeminate Christ. That's not true, but Christ is the uh, all-surpassing, beautiful one. These words, they who do truly believe in Christ, in their hearts, forsake all for Christ, forsake all their sins, forsake the world, and are willing to leave all for Christ. They who truly believe in Christ are willing to forsake father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, houses and lands, yea, and their own sins, rather than to forsake Christ. This this is really, it's a biblical point, it's an Augustinian point. You don't replace a bad affection with not, no affection. You replace the bad affection with a godly affection. Right. And right. the object of godly affections is God himself. Yeah, well, yeah, that's so. good. Um, Edwards also, it, right before those paragraphs that you just read, Jeff, he introduces the idea of inability again. Again, it seems like he's moving in and out, and um, he says those who believe in Christ see that they can't help themselves, um, that if Christ doesn't save them, they must perish uh, they see how exceedingly sinful they are in all their lives and that they deserve to be damned. Then over in the second point here, he says, I come now to show how that thus believing in Christ is the only way to be saved by Christ. All who are saved are saved for Christ's sake alone. And then he says this, we can never pay to God for the sins we have committed against him by anything we can do. Christ has done it for us. Therefore, our hearts must go to Christ for salvation and we must go nowhere else. Dave, it's interesting what you you tied this into sort of uh, God glorified in man's dependence, and you just see this. It's the same theology. It's the same emphases. It's sh- he's trying to show them their utter need for Christ and their helplessness without him. Yeah, and I think I think the the beauty of that is not just that he is revisiting a theme from 1730, but that this really is the heart of, of Edwards throughout his corpus is to get us to see our need for Christ. Um, The urgency is perhaps a little more evident in these Indian sermons because of the simplicity of language and structure, et cetera. But I think at the end of the day, that's what Edwards, that's, that's where his, that was his heartbeat. It's what he did when he stood before the Boston clergy, right? He could have, he could have preached whatever he could have made whatever statement, but he set a trajectory there for his public ministry uh, as it were, uh, in, in a very public setting, and he's still on that trajectory here uh, toward the end of his his ministry here in the 1750s. I think it's a beautiful thing. And as you noted also, there's a strong Adam Christ uh, interaction in his preaching where he's, um, I mean, this is a supremely Christ-centered sermon. Nobody could mm-hmm. accuse Edwards for not being Christ-centered because now he moves and he talks – he's really getting into how Christ paid it all, how Christ fulfilled all things and how he's sufficient. Um, and that being right part of the loveliness, the, the big part, um, that had Adam obeyed, he would, have, he would have gotten eternal life. But then he says on page 242, Christ has paid all our sins and has done enough for ourselves without anything of ours. Yet God won't save any for Christ's sake but such as belong to Christ. And there's that union with Adam, union with Christ, right? Exactly. Um, and uh, this, is, this is a federal sermon. I mean, this is a federal 
this is federal theology, and if you think about it, here he is preaching uh, to these Indians, attenuating it, um, simplifying, whatever. But if you think about preaching today, are we this theological? Just as theological as this simple sermon is, are we this theological? And I'd say in, in many parts of the church today, no, we're not. We, and, we, and we need to be more specifically Christological uh, in our preaching. If we're going to be Christological, it, it is going to be uh, the, the beauty of Christ, the desirability of Christ, but also the sovereignty of Christ. And it's going to uh, show us the idea of we were once in union with the first Adam, and now we are in union with the second Adam, and the only hope of salvation is being in union with the second Adam. Isn't, isn't this really an excellent uh, – you just brought it, the idea to my mind, David. This is an excellent sermon on how to be simple but not simplistic. Yes. How to be clear but theologically sound. Right. You don't have to forfeit theological depth or richness, biblical richness, to, in order to be simple. And this is right. very clear. I, I think it's very clear, and, and, and the reader can track with what Edwards is saying. Yeah, this is a very fine example of an evangelistic sermon to uh, perhaps a you know a context where people are more illiterate, and yet you know Edwards doesn't he doesn't water down and dumb down truth. He breaks it down. He makes it simple, um, but he's giving them some of the most profound and deep theological concepts in the sermon. Um, I love the way uh, Edwards is always taking it back to Adam in the fall. I think there's something wonderful about Edwards' theology that he's always going back to Genesis 1 through 3. I think it was Van Til that said, and I know lots of men have said this, but if you want to understand the rest of Scripture and you want to be a careful theologian, then get the theology of Genesis 1 through 3. And you see how Edwards is always doing that, always going back to Adam in the fall, before the fall, after the fall. Definitely. Well, I think he's wanting to, he's wanting them to understand uh, and, and biblically ground their uh, their understanding of of their lostness. Why why are they lost outside of Christ? It was because of what happened in the garden. Um, he, he's not bypassing that again. He's giving he's giving them a good uh, federal theology here. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it sounds so. It is so simple on one level. It's very simple, and and anybody who's listening to this, who has read Edwards, gets all of this, and they they've seen these things in Edwards. But I can't tell you how many sermons I've heard in my life. The majority that do not do that, even if Christ is brought in, going back to Adam, pre-lapsarian, post-lapsarian, you know, a biblical view of man before and after the fall. How many sermons I don't hear that, and you almost you almost sense when you're reading this that it's necessary to do that in preaching, um, in order to understand the riches of the gospel. Well, in order to under and, and this kind of gets at what Edwards was saying earlier. In order to under to appreciate the cure, you have to ha- have an understanding of the illness, right? Uh, and and that's really what he's getting at. And as you've already noted. Uh, here on page 242, he's he's going back to Adam, 
The great reason why God is willing to save God's own is not because of their goodness or anything they do. So you see, they are sinful, unworthy creatures. He saves us because we are joined to Christ. All who are joined to Christ, God will save them for Christ's sake. And then he goes on and said, this is the great difference between the way of getting eternal life, which was purposed to Adam before the fall. That is what we refer to as the covenant of works. And that which is now, if Adam had never sinned, he will have been made happy for his own goodness. But now we can be saved only by believing in Christ. So there's no other way uh, to be saved than, than to be by uh, faith uh, joined with the Savior. Yeah, um, very, very strong call for them to understand their depravity. Um, notice that what he does at the bottom of page 242 to 43 is he, he switches gears and he turns the whole thing on its head and essentially says to them, I've talked to you about the happiness of heaven. I've talked to you about how all who believe will be saved. Um, and then he says, I would now show, I would now show how they who don't believe shall be damned. Yeah. And, um, because Jesus himself says he that believes not shall be damned. And then he goes through this whole series of explaining what it's going to, what loss it's going to be for those who don't believe in Christ. The experience, as he's highlighted that experience of happiness, right? The experience of joy and satisfaction in Christ. Now he's going to talk about um, being deprived of all good and suffering misery to all eternity, the fruit of the wrath of God for sin. Um, Almost equally, if not stronger, equally as strong, if not stronger than what he said already, the language he employs. Yeah, he's um, he's juxtaposing in the earlier part of the sermon, basically the sufficiency that we have in Christ. You know, he, he I love there's a line on 240 where he says, they who truly believe in Christ see that he is able to save them, that there is enough in him for us. I love that that language. They, they see, right, their eyes have been opened. They see the sufficiency. There's enough in Christ for us. But to be damned is to be deprived of all good, right, to be separated from God. Uh, they'll never have God to dwell with them. And so he juxtaposes the sufficiency that you have in Christ. He is enough to the idea of being uh, empty and, and bereft of, of any good. Right. I thought it was it was also interesting when he was breaking down and describing what uh, eternal punishment was going to be like and what the state of man in um, a state of misery was going to be like that Edwards says there in the second full paragraph, the third, I'm sorry, halfway down the page, 243, they shall have no part with the saints in heaven. They shall see them at a great distance, but shall never come nigh to them. They shall be deprived of all the good things of this world, and they shall have no good things in another world, so that they shall have nothing. They shall be wholly deprived of all good. They shall wish and long for many things, but they shall have nothing. Now, it's interesting because he he will talk about the fire of God's wrath. In a minute, he's going to talk about devils being unleashed like hungry lions and wolves upon the souls of those that go down to hell. But here he talks about the desire, the inner desire of the reprobate. And 
I think that's interesting because sometimes you'll hear people critique some of our modern theologians who hold to more of a C.S. Lewis view of hell that it's, it'll be uh, ever-increasing longing for wickedness and for sinful desires. Um, and I understand the reservation because we don't want to downplay the fact that um, hell is going to be God in all his wrath and that it's going to be torment um, from the wrath of God. But here Edward seems to do both, doesn't he? kind of the internal misery and the external state. Yeah, in a number of his miscellanies, he talks about the ability of the the damned to see the happiness of the saints in heaven, and that increases their misery. Mm. Uh, you can see that in a, in a number of, um, of his miscellanies where he's talking about the afterlife, talking about heaven, hell, etc. It's a fixed part of his, of his theology, that part of what, how do I say this, exacerbates the, the misery of the reprobate is they see what they could have had. They see what the saints are enjoying. You know, you find that in Edwards in lots of places. You find it in C.S. Lewis. You find it in Tim Keller in, in more modern days. Um, is this an Augustinian concept, Jeff? Is that something you find in Augustine? I was thinking he may have gotten it from the 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 story of uh, Lazarus and Dives. Sure. Oh yes. Uh, sure. Yes. Because and now we yeah. have to be very careful when we talk about parables or stories. Uh, but in that account, the Dives, uh, which is simply the Latin for wealthy, okay, mm-hmm. Dives is in 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 hell, and he can see that that Lazarus, the poor man, the man who was poor on earth, but is is in Abraham's bosom, is not suffering, right? Right, and, and and so that might that might be where Edwards would would go for his biblical justification for the notion of the of the uh, sinners in hell uh, seeing what's going on with, with the saints in heaven. Now, also notice at the bottom of page two forty three that he talks about sinners being resurrected and their souls being reunited to their bodies for further eternal punishment because he. He, he argues, of course, that the soul upon death immediately goes to hell for the unbeliever, but that they will be reunited to their bodies for further suffering. We often think about the soul of the, the saint being reunited to the body uh, and then experiencing further joy in the, in the great resurrection. But this is the converse, right? This is the converse of that. Uh, there shall be no end of their misery after thousands of years. It will be just beginning and no nearer to an end. God will have no pity on them if they pray to him. He won't, he won't hear their prayers. He won't hear their cries and shrieks. That's pretty straightforward. It is, and I'm sure you're right about the rich man and Lazarus um, undertones with there will be no angels to carry him and um, the uncrossable un- uh, gulf between the saints and the and those who are damned. Very sobering section that he continues on. Um, he says, they shall have no friends. When people say, hell's going to be a party, they shall have no friends. God won't yeah, be their friend. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, you'll hear people talk about that and, and um, you know, even, you know, make light of, of hell at being a party or whatever. Uh, he says here they'll have no friends. It's interesting. In Miscellany 730, he says that instead of the damned, you know, the, instead of the damned ones being comforted in each other's company, it is probable 
that they will be as coals or brands in a fire that heat and burn one another. Mm. So the the relationship between the damned is no party. They provide no comfort, no solace, no relational worth. Um, they only increase and exacerbate uh, the the misery for one another. I I, um, I heard Tim Keller once. I don't know if it was an interview or a sermon. I think it was a sermon, and he said people ask me all the time, "Do you really think hell is going to be?" you know, this lake of fire and worms are going to eat people and teeth are really going to be gnashed together. And Keller said, and I say to him, oh, no, I don't. I think it's going to be vastly worse than that. Mm -hmm. That that's just metaphorical imagery. And what Edwards seems to be doing here is um, unpacking the vastly worseness of what we do find in the language of Scripture. Um, yeah, and it's 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 interesting too. You know, he says you, you'll not have God. You'll have you'll not have this nearness of God, and that will be part of what constitutes your misery. But he doesn't, as you know, teach that hell is the absence of God. You know, we'll hear that, like you said, people say, "Well, hell's going to be a party," or sometimes people say, "Well, hell is just the absence of God." And um, you know, in, in other miscellanies such as uh, five seventy five. He talks about Revelation 14.10, where what makes hell so hellish is not the absence of God, but actually the presence of Jesus, the presence of the Lamb. In other words, what makes hell so hellish is that they are tormented day and night in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And I think it's interesting that, that the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses that imagery. We think of a Lamb as being comforting, the Lamb who died for us, the Lamb who who brings solace, but it's the presence of the Lamb uh, that is emphasized in hell as part of the misery of the damned. And, and Edwards makes that point. It's not the absence of God that makes hell hellish, but the presence of God uh, in in unmitigated wrath and fury. Yeah, and you can almost sense someone, an unbeliever, listening to this today and, and saying, that's that's wicked. Why? How could a good God do something like that? And, you know, a thousand other objections to the truths that Edward sets out here. And so he goes on, very interestingly, to say, here's why. He says, consider the reasons why every man who does not believe in Christ shall be damned. All men have sinned and deserve to be damned. All men are naturally full of sin, and there are no saviors of sinners, no way of salvation but by Christ. Therefore, all they who don't belong to Christ must be damned. But none belong to Christ, but they who are joined to him. But none are joined to Christ, but only they whose hearts come to Christ and so believe in him. They who don't believe in Christ can't be saved by Christ. So they're very clearly excluding a universalist approach to the atonement because they must have him for their savior. Um, so strong as ever in Edwards' exclusivity of Jesus and explaining that all deserve eternal punishment, um, something that I think has to be pressed, something that you don't hear from many pulpits today, and yet, you know, necessary. And I love, you know, as he as he goes through that, Difficult section there uh, on the reality of damnation, the misery of the damned, etc. I love the way that he he brings the plane in for a landing, uh, talking again about the desirability of Christ. I love on two forty five uh, toward toward the top. 
Um, he, he juxtaposes sort of a sort of punchless Christianity or a punchless religiosity. You know, you know, you go to meeting, you don't get drunk, etc. But he said that well and good, but these things alone won't do. You must give your whole heart to Christ. And then he brings back in that affectionate, that affectional theolo- uh, theology. He says, have your eyes ever been opened to see the glorious excellency of Jesus Christ? Has the light of the word of God ever shined into your heart so that uh, to see the excellency of that word that teaches Christ and the way of salvation by him? Has the word of Christ been sweeter to you than honey on the honeycomb? Is the word of Christ sweet food to your soul that puts new life into you and is better than silver and gold? So again, this this affectional language, this language of intimacy, this language of sweetness, etc., he brings back in to sort of sort of salve over the, the wound that he has caused with that, um, with that straightforward preaching about, about hell and damnation. And yet, interesting, and that's a very good point, Dave, how he does that, yet interesting that he uses 14 searching questions in a row on page 245 that mm. he asks question after question after question to you so that you have to deal with you know, right. do you see what poor, wicked, miserable creatures you are? Do you see that all your goodness, all your prayers, all that you do is not worthy to be accepted by God and can never pay for your sins? Um, and so even in that sweetness section you read, have your eyes been opened to see the glorious excellency right. of Jesus? So he is taking the scriptures and saying, now ask yourself, where are you in this? Um, I know there's mixed reviews about this book, but John Carrick's um, the imperative of preaching, he deals with the homiletical technique of different preachers, Samuel Davies, Edwards, and this is one of those marked sections, the way that um, these great Reformed preachers and, and the men that God used for revival oftentimes used series of these searching questions. Mm. Yeah, and I wonder if the reason that this was so effective uh, in their day asking these searching questions is that perhaps people then were more prone to seriously search their heart, to seriously take stock. And, um, you know, would that, that today we would be willing to ask these hard questions of our hearts, do this kind of, this kind of, um, you know, heart audit as it were, and listen to these questions and let them search, uh, let them search us today. Yeah, the the final part of this um, sermon, and I'd like y'all's thoughts on this as we walk out of this now, um, he he really moves to the free offer of the gospel. So he's dealt with, you know, God's sovereignty in enabling sinners to believe, to open their eyes, to see the glories of Christ. He's talked about the responsibilities of men. He's talked about the reward for those who believe. He's talked about the punishment for those who don't. He's gone through those applicatory questions, those searching questions uh, to stir up in the minds of the hearers whether they do. And now he turns and he presses on them that the gospel is being offered to them freely. I think that's magnificent how he brings all that together in one sermon. A beautiful sermon in terms of uh, an example of how to preach. Uh, Like I said earlier, uh, this is simplified and shorter than the sermons he would preach at Northampton. Mm. But but the content has not been shortchanged. The, the listeners of these of this sermon would have been getting the full fledged Edwards preaching, but in a in a less uh, complex, though still biblically and theologically rich form. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, something I would I would say too, 
Uh, if you want to get a good feel for what Edwards is about, go through the sermon and just underline every occurrence of the word heart, every occurrence of the word see or to see, and every occurrence of the name of Christ or, or Jesus. It really is staggering the number of times those three things are referred to in this sermon. And that's that's what he was about, and that's what this sermon is about, and I agree. Beautiful example of of simplifying but not being simplistic. Great covenantal federal theology focused on the sovereignty of God, etc., juxtaposing um, the severity of our sin, the sweetness of the Savior, and this urgent pleading. I mean, even the way that he, the very last thing he says, Christ this day calls and invites you. I am his servant. In other words, it's not it's not just me. I am his servant. He's the one calling and inviting you. And I invite you to come to him. Make haste. Delay not. There's that urgency that's seen throughout the whole sermon. And again, apropos, given that he's preaching from Mark, because there's a, there's a hastiness. There's, a, there's an urgency to Mark's gospel, right? Give your heart to Christ, and he will save you from hell, and all heaven will be yours. Yeah, that's that's really a great observation. Um, great observations for us to to stop with. We encourage you to get a hold of um, the McMillan McMullen. I'm sorry, um, edited uh, blessings of God, and I think you can you can find those online at Amazon. I'm not sure if Westminster WTS Books has them or not, but I'm sure you can find them on Amazon. And, uh, and there are two volumes, Nick. There are two volumes actually that B and H did. And now this is, is volume one of, of the two. Uh, there is a third volume by McMullen that's by a different publisher, and it's a paperback. But it's also it's it's up until then unpublished sermons of Edwards. So there is there is a third volume now. Okay, so this is volume one, the blessing of God. Um, get a hold of that. Read some of these sermons. They're not at WJE online, um, and I could not find this online. So they are apparently only in that published volume. Um, we hope to have more sermons and discussions. We've got some book reviews coming up in uh, forthcoming weeks. And so we want to encourage you to, to continue coming back, checking in, see what's coming out as we release more uh, episodes. We are so thankful that you've taken time to, uh, to listen to this episode. And you can find Dave online uh, at Christ Presbyterian Church. Um, in Nashville, Tennessee. You can find some of his sermons there. He also has um, a blog, teachinglikerain.wordpress.com. Is that right? That's right. And you can find Jeff all over um, uh, different reform forum sites. You can find him on Christ the Center. You can find him at Feeding on Christ and other various sites that belong to the Reform Forum. And we hope that you'll tune in again for another episode of East of Eden. <laughs>